Wait, are you... <laughs> are you gonna count me in? Whatever. I'm just gonna go for it. Welcome to the Queen's Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Singleton. And as a child of the 80s, I'd love to say Queen's rule. But they don't. Queen's lead. Being a queen means you are worthy to be a leader of people. The guests on our show do exactly that. They are leading the way in their businesses, families, and communities. And they're taking their rightful place in the spotlight, leading and inspiring the developing queens in all of us. Welcome to the Queen's Lead Podcast. Now here's your host, Amy Singleton, the queen of realness, leading conversations about business, life, and the real shit you want to know. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Queen's Lead Podcast. We have a real treat for you. I feel like mental health is something we're all talking more and more about, and I'm so excited to welcome Laurie Singer. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist, board certified in applied behavior analysis, and she leads a very successful Camarillo, California-based uh, Laurie Singer Behavioral Services. And she's been inspired by her own personal tragedy. Can't wait to get into that. And so now she's devoted her life to this field of mental health. She's just written, written a book called You're Not Crazy, Living with Anxiety, Obsessions, and Fetishes. Excited to hear more about that. Welcome, Lori. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So uh, tell us, I, I obviously introed you, but tell the guests who you are. Um, well, gee, okay. So I'm a woman in her 60s, mid 60s now, which is hard to believe myself. Uh, no way. <laughs> I'm looking for those of you watching or not watching, like go to the YouTube channel right now, because Lori, <laughs> I thought was just my age. Like you look fantastic. Holy crap. Let's get your skincare regimen after we get off this call. <laughs> Sorry. So a middle, middle sixties, that's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. And it's interesting looking back at life and, you know, life is always throwing us some challenges and it's what we do with those challenges that can be, um, it, it's just a cross, it, it's a, a path you have to take, you know, either right or left, not knowing what to do at the time. And then you look back and say, that was actually a positive thing I did out of a very tragic moment. Uh, yes. And, it, you know, having to do with my son that passed away and um, how that was such a pivotal time in my life where I went back to school and I never thought I would go to school because I was a horrible student. Uh, wow. But I had started running and they asked me to run track for a college and I wanted to help families after being in the hospital, seeing how families suffered, especially mm -hmm. on the cancer floor where my son was. And it it is just taken on a life of its own. And it's helped me and my other family members because now my daughter works with me. She's been with me for 10 years helping families oh, wow. as well. And um, just being able to make these accomplishments in my life that I never thought I could do. I never thought I could go to college and ended up graduating the junior college as valedictorian. And that was all through sports. It was by chance. And then yeah. getting two degrees and having my own practice. But at the same time, all of it was devoted for helping people that needed help, people with special needs, people that, you know, severe anxiety, depression. It was always, I wanted to be there for people because I saw how much it helped other families and our family when we were suffering. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So for those of you who don't know Lori's story, if you haven't read the book yet, or you don't know anything about her, you lost a young child. 
back yes. in the 80s? So he was, yes. Yeah, so he was, um, it was like two months before his second birthday that he became ill and we didn't know what was wrong. He was misdiagnosed with an ear infection when actually he had a tumor that was crushing his spine. And oh um, yes, and then the cancer went to his brain and within two and a half months, he passed away. So it was oh all gosh. very sudden and it was just tragic and trying to grapple with all of that. My friends convinced me to uh, put on a memorial event in his name. And it also had read the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which is an excellent mm. book. And it said, do something to memorialize the loved one, especially a child. And yeah. so we just had our 37th memorial event for oh our God. son that passed away. And all the money goes to Children's Hospital, but it goes to something that my husband and I actually created, which is the Child Life Program. Wow. We didn't we didn't know that that's where it was going to come from or go to, I should say. At the time, we saw that there was nothing for the kids to do while they were in the hospital and sick, nothing for the siblings to do. There was a Mr. Potato Head with one eye. And, yeah, right. Right. So we yeah. said, you know, let's have an event where all the money goes to buying the kids toys, something fun for them to do while they're there. And yeah. 10 years, 10 years into it, Children's Hospital approached us and said, hey, we noticed that there once a year, there's all these donations in your son's name. Let's start a child life program. And oh, so that, wow. yeah, it was really cool. And so that program is on the cancer floor and they have um, licensed therapists working with the children, with the siblings. They have toys, they have games. And this is all from what we started uh, from my son's passing. So I would, you know, I would give anything to have my son back again, but to know that his life brought so much joy to other families because of it, it's, it, it really is something it really is. Wow. That is so absolutely incredible. I mean, take action. Did you memorialize? I mean, you're memorialized and, and you now have a legacy in your son's name that, that is helping so many other people, um, in that situation. My son was not sick with cancer, but we did have a really big health scare and he had some major surgeries as a, as an infant. And I do remember there was nothing to do there for the older brother. He was with family. There was nothing, obviously he was an infant, but there was almost no resources in that hospital for, for the, for the other, um, the sibling or the child, if they were able to partake. So kudos to you. That's a fantastic, um, fantastic thing that you've done. I'm so proud um, Thank you. of you and for you. That's fantastic. What were you doing before, uh, vocationally? Well, I was, okay. So my, uh, I was very young. I was 19 when I moved in with my husband, Okay. I was 21 when I got married, 22 when I had just Jackie, my oldest. Three years later, I had Jacob. I was a cashier at a supermarket. So wow. I was, a, yeah, I was a cashier at a supermarket. And I knew it was time for me to leave. Uh, one, because I had just started uh, junior college and running for the college. And um, two was I was at my register and I said, I, I need to use the restroom. And the manager said, are you sure you have to go? You just had a break. And I thought, well, I'm 30 years old. I think I know when I have to use the bathroom. <laughs> right? But, oh my gosh. So I thought, okay, it's time to leave. It's time yeah. to leave. And um, then I just devoted myself to school, which was, and, and my family. 
and I was still grieving, you know, going through this whole thing, mm -hmm. trying to make a normal life for your daughter, whose brother just passed away. And yeah. uh, I, I think it was good for me to, to have that hyper focus on school at the time. Um, it was mm -hmm. a distraction. And like anxiety, you know, at some point I did have to deal with the grief. Um, it was much later yeah. in life. It was probably close to 10 years after his death that I actually dealt with the grief. Yeah. Wow. And so was there any other um, example of a business owner, someone in the mental health field, or was it all just sprung from that experience? So I, it's interesting. So when I graduated college, I ran into somebody by chance who said, Hey, you should come and work and provide behavioral services. Well, you know, I wasn't planning on it, but I started to work with individuals with developmental disabilities. And mm -hmm. at the time, uh, my boss was working remotely, so to speak. Um, he really didn't have anything to do with us. I was kind of left to do things on my own. And I thought, you know what, I could do this. And so, of course, with my ADHD, I thought, <laughs> I, I'll just sign up for college, get my master's, get my license and run my own business. And yeah. so that's kind of what I did. And I what I did talk to other individuals that maybe didn't have the same exact business, but they were business owners. And I would talk to them and get some advice from them. And even to this day, I have people reach out to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about opening my own business. And I invite them in or with a phone call. If I can help anybody in any way, that that's what I would do, because that's what people did for me. Yeah. And and how long has it been since this 30 oh, years? It's, it's been over plus? 20, over 20 years that I've had my own practice. And when I started, it was just myself. And then it was one other person. And, you know, by word of mouth, of course, you know, when you want to find a good therapist or a good physician or any type of a referral, you ask your friends typically. Right. And because um, you, you don't want to just go in the yellow. I don't think they have yellow pages anymore. <laughs> or put your finger on it and then pick a pick a therapist or a good doctor. So especially in the, I believe in the community of individuals with uh, developmental disabilities, it's a very tight knit community. And so, for example, like the autism society or any other, you know, down syndrome society, they would talk amongst themselves and say, Hey, you should get Lori Singer, or you should, you know, she's done really well with our family. You should try her. So there was such a need. I had to make a decision. Should I grow or should I stay, you know, small, but I couldn't do it by myself and I, and I'm a, I want to help people. So I started to yeah. hire more people and we just grew. And now I have, you know, 25 employees and we serve about 150 families. So, wow. um, so we're trying to do good work. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing fantastic work. And <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what inspired the book that just came out, right? Or how long yeah, have you had the book out? I, I think it was released during COVID. Um, I believe it was two years ago or just about maybe close to two years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, well, what inspired it is I'm a, uh, there's it's there's a couple of things. One is that I'm a very goal oriented person. I like to set goals for myself, whether that's with athletics or anything else that I do. And um, so when I turned 60, I thought I'm going to write a book you know, just like I'm going to go back to school. Right. Yeah, so you don't yeah. really, you don't really know what goes into it. And so a few years later, the book's completed, then you have to edit it, all this other stuff. But uh, also, you know, I work a lot with a lot of the physicians in the area that refer clients to us. 
and mm -hmm. psychologists. And they said, you know, Laura, your method is really effective. You should write a book because other some people may not be able to go to therapy or maybe a self-help book would help other individuals who are just, they're not sure if they should go to therapy yet. And that kind of opens the door to it. Mm, yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, so what is different about your method? I know you don't want to spill all your secrets, oh, but no. I know lots of people have gone <laughs> to therapy, not had success. I've gone and I've been asked how that makes me feel a hundred thousand times before, and it wasn't really helping. So what is it about your services that are so different that are making such an impact? Well, um, you know, well, first of all, in the book, I, I, I had to make a decision. How much of myself was I going to disclose? You know, how mm, much should this just be? One. Yes. That's a big one. <laughs> right. It is a big one. And I, you know, I thought I don't want to have a book where I'm, it's just like, okay, you need to do this and you need to do this and this is what you should do. And then it'll work. Well, that's mm -hmm. not always the case. And like you said, not every therapy is right for each individual. It has to yeah. be specifically designed for you. So I thought I'm going to disclose my some of myself and probably a lot more of myself than maybe most people would have in a help, you know, self-help book. I disclosed mm -hmm. that my mother was a drug addict and alcoholic and she left my family when we were very young. My dad raised us in the death of my son and all these different things that happened in my life. And um, when I did start helping individuals and, and went back to college and then opened my own practice, I used two different types of, of therapy, two modalities, and they're both solution focused. So that's what sets it apart as well. It's not that I don't care about your feelings. I can, of course I care how you feel. I wouldn't be in this business if I didn't care right. how you felt. I want to help yeah. you feel better about yourself, right? And so yeah. how do we do that? So the two modalities that I use, one is what we've all heard of is cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Mm -hmm. So cognitive behavioral therapy, we know that cognitively are, is our thoughts and our thoughts create emotions. And those emotions can be happy or sad. And those emotions were angry, right? Um, yeah. And those emotions are exhibited through our behavior. And by that, I mean, um, if we're angry, do we yell? Do we hit? Are we out of control? You know, when you're younger, it's called a tantrum. And when you're older, mm -hmm. it's called an, an outburst. They're both the yeah. same thing, right? Yeah. Um, or is your sadness coming out where you're isolating yourself? Are you so anxiety ridden that you won't leave the house, that you order your food online, that you do all of these things that it's affecting your job, your relationship. So how do we change those thoughts, right? That's the mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral aspect of it. The other yes. part is, a, is behavioral therapy. And behavioral therapy is how do we change our environment to help change our behavior? And if mm. we want to use, right, because our environment affects our behavior, it could even be the people in our environment that are enabling us to continue <laughs> this maladaptive behavior, right? Yeah. So yeah. we need to look at our environment and how can we change our environment to help us change our behavior? And if I am working with a family, I'd like to have the whole entire family give their perspective of the situation because they have to change their behavior too. Like I said, they're mm -hmm. enabling the situation. Whether they realize it or not, because they, they're concerned about the loved one that may be exhibiting the behavior. So they just continue to go shopping for them, make excuses for them, you know, yeah. whatever the case may be. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think so many people in those situations think they're trying to help, but really, you know, it's making things worse um, on both of, on both parties or all parties. Um, you mentioned that you shared 
quite a bit in your book. And I, with marketing, people come to me all the time with this question very specifically in the speeches that they're giving, the talks that they're giving on their social media. How much, <laughs> pardon me, how much could we be sharing? Should we be sharing? Is it right to share? Because it's come to my attention that when I share certain portions of my story, if I get too deep in the weeds, it really detracts from the lesson I'm trying to share. And it really sends people's brains off on all kinds of tangents, you know, feeling sorry for you or trying to relate to that instead of really getting the message. So what, what do you say to that? Well, I think, you know, when I'm in session and if I feel like it's contributing to the situation, because, you know, people come to see me and they think that a lot of times they'll say, I'm probably the worst case you've ever seen, you know, and I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> like there's nothing you can say to me that I haven't heard a hundred times before, right? Right. Or, you know, so, but they believe that about themselves. So I think to normalize mm. it, to normalize the situation, I can give them an example from either myself or something, you know, another individual uh, who may have something similar and how did that outcome turn out? Uh, mm -hmm. Now, when we talked about using cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral therapy, I let my clients know right away, this is going to be work for you. It's not like you're going to no. come in and you're going to, I'm going to, you're going to talk about your past and talk about what happened today. And I'll just nod my head. And how did that make you feel? Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're expected to take data on themselves. They're given data sheets and I explain how to do that. We analyze the data together. And from that, I write a specific treatment plan for them. And then they are held accountable to that plan. So it's not just, okay, when this happens to you, I want you to, to breathe next time. Remember, when, it, when you start to get anxious, but that doesn't work because you need to practice something before you put it into play. I, mm -hmm. I use the analogy of, you know, running. If you signed up for a 10K, would you wait till race day for the first time you ran? That doesn't yeah. make sense. So if Absolutely you have- not. Yeah, if your anxiety is situational or whatever it is we're working on, I would expect you to practice the plan we have in place outside a program. And, and so that way, when it does happen, you're ready for it. You can use those strategies in the moment and generalize them. Oh my gosh, absolutely. As you were saying that, I was thinking, she sounds like a fitness coach for the brain. Like that is something, you know, that is completely, and you even mentioned uh, your own physical activity, which um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on that. I, growing up, uh, physical activity and exercise and like physical health, it was more of like a concern than a priority and a value, if that makes sense. Like we were always reacting to what was happening in our health or our weight or whatever, instead of being on a a fitness, you know, journey or a, a incorporating it into our lives. Uh, but you are an ultra marathoner, uh, Jesse Itzler style, crazy David Goggins lady over here <laughs> running hundred mile races. So tell us how important our physical movement is to what's up here between our, our ears. Well, I know that for me, you know, growing up, I was just a tomboy. We, you, you have to remember, because I am older, we didn't really have or that many organized sports for girls or women. Really? There was, you know, okay. Yeah, there was, yeah, um, really, when I got into high school, it was pretty much the first time they had real organized sports for women. It was just wow. that we really didn't participate in things like that. So I was mm -hmm. mainly a tomboy. And then um, 
I, when I had my first child is when I really started running. It was the first time I, I ran. I ran to the 7-Eleven and back. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can do this. So I, <laughs> wow. I, I started participating in races and winning. And I thought, I can't believe I'm winning. I'm actually good at this, at, which made me feel good about myself. I had a strength that I could build on. And I would always fall on that. I was a horrible student. And uh, I was never diagnosed. I have a learning disability and I have ADHD. And it, I was just always sent to the principal's office because I wouldn't do my work or I was talking. I was just so easily distracted. And um, but I found that running helped me organize. It taught me, oh, I don't even know what they call it now, but I'll, I'll think of it later. It, but um, it taught me how to organize myself. And so when I went to school, I would do it as if I was planning for a race. If I had a project due or a test, I would write down the date mm. in my planner and then work backwards. This is what I need to do on this day. This is what I need to do on this day and this on. And it was yes. amazing how it worked. Yes, that is constantly my husband is is our operations manager and he is so good at that. And I am so not good at back building <laughs> a process or a goal like that. And I love that you um that you were able to kind of figure that out and relate it to your running. That's incredible. Um wow, what a great what a great uh, concept. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I know we're, this episode is releasing in February, but right now it's November as we're talking. And so uh, a lot of people are facing the holidays coming up. Of course, we'll have holidays again next year. So I'd like to <laughs> hear your thoughts on, on seasonal affective disorder and really how that affects us as humans and how we can, can do better by ourselves with that. Um, I, my thoughts are there's two things go on in the holiday, maybe more than two, but the two things that stand up for me, and I guess it's because I work with individuals that are suffering at this time, or I can see that they're suffering is the loss of a loved one. Um, and then the holidays come up, especially yeah. the, that first year is just a blur for most people. And how do you get through the holidays dreading the fact that you're going to have to celebrate I celebrate. How do you even celebrate? How do you, right. how do you, how do you expect somebody to be happy when they just lost a loved one or that holiday is always going to bring up those feelings mm -hmm. of that person. So I think recognizing ahead of time that you may be having, that you're going to have a difficult time, make people more aware that this is going to be hard for you and mm -hmm. to, to plan ahead for that. So with me, like running and everything else is how do we plan ahead? It's not that it's always going to go that way. There's always a plan A or a plan B, right? Yeah. We want people to be understanding, but more times than not, people will say something because they want to help you, but it's not always the right thing to say, you know, yeah, like, and, for it, sure. and, for, and here we go. I'm going to use me as an example. And this is how you were talking last time. So when I lost my son, they would say, at least you have another one. And oh my gosh. So, but people, <sighs> but people say that quite a bit, right? Yeah. So let's say it's uh, the first holiday season and you're going to spend it without your, your spouse or your mother or your father. And they'll say, yes, but at least you have your other family members. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're not going to miss the one that you lost. Yeah. Yeah. So, so be, um, just be mindful of yourself. And if you don't feel like going to a big function, you don't have to go. You need to take care of yourself first. And yeah. maybe instead, call a close friend and say, you know, I'm feeling a little down. There was this function I really don't want to go to. Would you mind just hanging out with me? I mean, it's okay mm. to do that. It's okay to yeah. not do what <laughs> is other people expect you to do. 
That's what I would say. Yeah, that's the the best way you'll ever lose is other people's expectations, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. They don't know what's best for us, for sure. Um, And I love that you say that too about not knowing what to say. So if you're not the person who's lost the person, but you have a friend or a family member who's lost someone really close, be really cognizant of what you're saying to those people. Um, I was just in a conversation this morning with a woman um, who said uh, someone had commented on her weight and, and she hadn't intentionally lost the weight. So we just really never know where somebody is. Um, and, and our comments can be really hurtful if we're not being cognizant of where they might be, um, with that. So thank you for that reminder. Um, and Uh, yes, so there's the holiday season, there's that, there's also taking on more of the holiday season. You know, now that I am older, I'm thinking, do I really have to do everything for the Hanukkah dinner? <laughs> can I <laughs> can I delegate someone else to bring a dessert? Of course I can. It's okay yeah. if I do. So that's where I'm kind of to the point where, you know, my kids are 30 and in their 40. So it's, why do I have to make everything? I don't. So I need to be okay with delegating. I need to be okay with not being in control of the whole situation and saying, it's okay. Maybe make it a potluck. Maybe just, you know, have right. not be in charge of the desserts and have that taken off of my to-do list, which will make things much easier. So I think that's something to look at. You don't have to take on the full responsibility. That's right. Yeah. And and all of the the holidays and celebrations and stuff are, are not, they're not even, we're they're not our constructs. This is just what has been happening all the time, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be what we do. I love that you that you point that out. It can be whatever works for us. That's right. And it can change, it can evolve. It doesn't mean it has to stay the same. Yeah. Absolutely. What you need one year may be something completely different than what you need the next year. And I think it's time to normalize those conversations, you know, with our loved ones. Like, what are you guys feeling this year for Christmas? Do we really need to have everyone give each other a gift or can we draw names or can we just go in together and go on a trip together? What, what can we do different that meets our goals, you know, financially, not everybody's in the best situation every year. So, um, I love that we can be more open about those conversations or at least start the conversation to be more open, uh, moving forward because what works for us is what works for us. And it doesn't have to be what's working for our neighbor. One thing that we did a few years back, it must be at least five years now, is we don't celebrate Thanksgiving on that Thursday. We celebrate it the next day because Mm. it's just easier for our family to get together on that day. So that's what we do. Um, The other thing is the the time change. The time change. (laughs) Oh, my. That first week was horrible for me. And I had to remind myself that this is this is what everybody's going through. And I guess I just forget, even though I've written about it and said, you need to prepare for this. This is what you need to do. But my inner clock has was waking me up at 4 a.m. because I usually yes. wake up at 5, 5.15. And I'm like, yeah. what the heck? I'm up at 4. What am I going to? And then I'm asleep by 8. You know, this whole time change <laughs> has just taken its toll. Uh, yeah. But again, to normalize it, I think would be the first thing. Like, it's okay. You're just, everybody's trying to, now, they, women do have a harder time. You know, it's proven that women have a harder time dealing with this uh, time change. But if again, if you do plan for it and there are things to do, especially to stick with routine, try if, you know, if I if I wake up at four, try to at least stay in bed till five. Right. So yeah. that you stay on that routine and your body gets used to following the new time change. There's also these amazing clocks that are called the sunrise clocks. 
and it's good for kids or adults. And it, uh, you set the timer for what time you want to wake up. And then it, the room starts to light up as if it was sunlight. And so that gets you out of bed. So you just would look Google uh, sunrise clocks and you could find nice. that out. Um, have a routine. I'm always a big believer in exercise. So I think every day somebody should at least go for a brisk walk. It's the, you know, the serotonin of, of exercising, even if it's a brisk walk and getting that sunshine or I just the fresh air, even if the sun isn't out and you get fresh air, I think it's exhilarating and it sets the tone for the rest of the day. A hundred percent. Yeah. Movement is life for me. When I was super depressed in my past, I quit moving completely. Um, and, um, and just withdrew and didn't even barely go outside. So yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely know that that is, that is definitely core for me to keep moving. Um, I think, it, and then maybe somebody like you would benefit, like, or somebody in your similar situation would benefit from a buddy that would make that person more accountable to walk with, even if it's just a half a block. Like I have a client yeah. who's 80 years old and I said, I don't care if you just walk to the corner and back, mm -hmm. but you need to do that at least once a day. Yeah. Yeah. Movement is movement is absolutely life. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about screens, screen time, um, with kids, especially what, uh, what is going on with that? How can we control it? How is it affecting our young minds and even our minds with all of these entertainment and communication, um, devices that we have in our hands all the time? And especially with kids who have ADD or ADHD, it's just like, you know, it's like a vortex that you're just sucked into. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I saw a real rise in that during the pandemic. And mm -hmm. during that time, I had a lot of clients come in who were in high school and in their mid 20s that had body dysmorphic disorder because wow. there was so many individuals taking selfies and then like I don't know what they they would redo their picture or they mm -hmm. put it online or Instagram and then they were so obsessed with how many likes they got or you know whatever it was um so that that's where I saw a huge rise in it I saw that there was a problem before that but I think that's when people really especially the younger generation kind of became I want to say addicted to it um I would say well, if you have somebody under 18 or if you have somebody 18 who has a developmental disability and could get themselves in trouble, I would say mm -hmm. parental control is key. Uh, I don't know why all the kids have to have an iPhone. I don't know why. I mean, if you want to buy yeah. a prepaid, you can buy a prepaid phone and have only a, three numbers in there. If they're in trouble, this is who they should call. Right. Uh, you know, it doesn't. Why do they have to be on the Internet? They don't have to be. They don't yeah. have to have that access all the time. Uh, they won't be like everybody else, but do they have to be like everybody else? I know it, at that age, it's important to be similar to your peers, but in the long run, you're, you're, you're creating boundaries and that's what they really want, even though it may not seem like it, but that boundaries mm -hmm. are the best thing. So, yeah. so one would be, do they really need the iPhone? Can they just have a prepaid phone or one that just has numbers in it? The other mm -hmm. one would be, you really need to have parental control over what you need to look at what your kids are texting, who they're calling all the time, all the time. And um, the other would be if, if you want to use, because I know video games and gaming can be a big reward for a lot of kids as far yeah. as like 
completing their chores and things like that. You can, you can use that as a reward, but use it as a reward. Why should they just get to use it? Like, why can they have free access to it if they haven't done their homework? If they haven't done their chores, they should have a to-do list, a task list. And those mm -hmm. things should be done. And then you can use your electronics. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, grateful to have much older children. <laughs> I don't know how, uh, right? how people do it um, these days with, with these young eyeballs. I, I can't even begin to imagine. Uh, so I have a lot of empathy for that. One thing that I really struggled with, I think really before COVID um, especially, but I've seen a big rise in it since I've controlled this for myself, but world events, like I found myself impotently raging. And I say impotently because I was never going to go and really do something about most of these causes, politics, gun control, whatever I was angry about that day. Um, I would just be on online, you know, just talking about how pissed off I was and why this is wrong or why this is right or whatever. And I found myself in a loop and feeling really stressed out with the world events and the news and what you see on social media and and feeling like I had to take a stance. Um, how can we continue to be informed and pick and choose what's important to us that we're willing to take action on without feeling so chaotic? Well, I think that is a really tough question in the fact that um, what is fact-checked and how do we say, mm -hmm. you know, why would we fact-check something and why, and I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. I was so compelled to at first initially, and I think it started politically, right? It started mm -hmm. for me, it seems like it really was really an increase once the pandemic hit and, you know, the whole presidential situation arose. Yes. And um, I didn't, I, I responded to some of the, social media things. And then I stopped myself. I thought I cannot respond because then I'm just adding fuel to the fire, right? Yeah. I'm adding fuel to the fire and, and I don't need to do that. I need to, I don't have to agree with what they're saying, but right. I am not, I am not going to be a part of this because it just, it isn't healthy for anybody. But I have to say, uh, you know, for me personally, being Jewish and what's going on right now is it's been difficult for me to see what's happening. And in fact, on my bike ride last week in the bike lane, um, there was a swastika on the ground. You know, it was it was spray painted on. on and this is in, um, you know, Ventura County. Uh, well, we just had the other incident in Ventura County as well. And it was a few days. I think it was around the same time that that gentleman died. But I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I just can't. I was devastated to see that on the sidewalk yeah, and um, or not on the sidewalk, but on the bike lane. Um, and I just to watch what's going on in the world and everything on social media. I don't look at a lot of social media. I really don't. Yeah. You know, my, my business is a part of it, but I don't really look on social media because I'm so uh, I know that it's everything's exaggerated, exaggerated right. on both sides. You know, so how do you yes. get your information? I think if we can pay attention to. I don't want to say all of it, but both sides of everything and then just try to find out what is the reality of the situation. Uh, yeah. It's it's just, it's hard to piece together. And I think if you have somebody that you can talk to and who you trust, I think that's a better way than displaying your emotions. Because again, right, if we go back to cognitive behavioral therapy, it's our thoughts about how upsetting this 
posters that somebody put up or somebody said, and then our reaction right away is to respond to it or defend it or engage in it when really that doesn't do any good. Um, so, So I think at that point is to stop and say, what is a healthy choice? What can I do that's healthier than responding to this and come up with some ideas that you can use for yourself, take a deep breath and, and, and do what you need to do. And I think you'll feel better about it. I know I feel better not responding. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it doesn't, I found, you know, whenever I would respond to something like that, I thought about it all day. I would go back yes. and reread it. I would see what other people had responded and it really monopolized my brain yes. on something again, like I said, that I was never, I didn't really care about because if I cared about it enough, I'd be out protesting or, or running for Congress or doing something right. to make a change. Right. But I wasn't, I was just allowing them to monopolize my brain power and, and my physical self because I was so trapped and wrapped up in thinking about. I love that it goes back to what are we thinking about? What are our thought patterns? And and not only that, you could get a response that is so off of who you are, but they're calling you a name or identifying you as something that that wasn't at all what you meant in your response. You were just right. giving a response and it was taken right. out of context. Correct. Yeah. It's very difficult to, even with just texting a, another person back and forth, it's really difficult to to get context about what someone meant behind a, a certain thing. So I just encourage you guys pick up the phone and call somebody. If you're having, if you're like, well, what the hell did she mean by that? Well, pick up the phone and ask her. She's a, she's a person just like you. It's okay to ask <laughs> and not have to sit there wondering and waiting and one worrying about what someone meant. Yeah. Don't let them monopolize your mind. I think that's the, the key. I think that's right a there. great idea. I think using the phone and talking is a great idea. <laughs> yeah, we should probably do more of that, uh, more of that this day, these days. So tell us, um, tell us, are, are you able to work with people outside of California or is that most of your, most of your uh, client base there in California? Well, it's interesting. I do work with a few people outside of California and it was actually, um, they had read my book and they said, you know, I read your book and I'd really like to work with you. And so, yes, you can, you know, you can just sign consent for release forms and all these other measures that you have to take and papers assigned, but yeah, it can be done in its video. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, of course I love meeting with people in person, but I think it's made it very convenient. And as long as I can see the person, I can read the body language because so much of what people say, but if it doesn't match their body language, then, you know, I need to, to figure, call that out or ask questions about it, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I'm like worried what am I doing with my arms now that you're watching me? <laughs> What's my body language say?
The Queen's Lead podcast is recorded worldwide and produced by the kick-ass media team at the Height Digital home base in Nicaragua. Until our next episode, stay real, Queens, and go lead. Remember to tap that follow and leave your review. For freebies and more real, inspiring content you love, go to amysingleton.net and connect with Amy on our socials at The Real Amy Singleton. One more thing. This is the legal language, what my lawyer wrote and what I need to read to you. This podcast is presented for educational and entertainment purposes only. I am Amy Singleton, and I'm just your friend. Although I may speak to many on this show, I am not a psychotherapist, a business coach, a doctor, a CPA, a lawyer, or probably anyone who should be giving you professional advice. This podcast is not a substitute for a relationship with your doctor, coach, or any other licensed professional. Got it? Good. Now go be a queen and follow me at The Real Amy Singleton.